Welcome to Use After Free, where we will discuss whatever topics are on our minds at the moment. This is an outlet for us to explore new ideas, challenge each other, challenge ourselves, and challenge our listeners. We believe that discussion about hard topics is vital to the success of our country, our communities, and ourselves. Have a listen, start a discussion, and reach out to be involved. We hope you like this episode, and please subscribe for more content. You know, I'm really feeling with a lot of the stuff going on in the news and whatnot. I feel really uninformed about the world and the narrow view I have of America and our voting system. I know about the, as Homer Simpson once said, the electrical college and how we cast our ballots in America. But I was having a really interesting conversation about, you know, what's our voting system compared to the rest of the world? I understand that the majority of the world uses a populist democracy, or do they? Is that just a misconception? I'd really like to dive deep into voting systems of the world around and the different styles and, you know, just get into, do we have the best voting system? My opinion, considering American exceptionalism, we do. But uh, I think it's definitely worth the conversation. Cool. Um, yeah, I agree. Let's start with kind of the idea that basically when we look at voting systems, we have to take into fact there's basically like three families of systems. And there's the plurality system, the semi-proportional system, and then the proportional systems. So when we look at breaking these down, basically what we see is that the plurality slash majority systems, these are usually winner-take-all systems that are used very commonly in the United States at multiple levels. And they include common plurality systems like single winner and at-large districts. And then there's some less common majority systems like two-round runoff uh, type systems as well. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, let's slow down because you just blew my mind. So sure. you're saying plurality. You're meaning like, hey, you've got 51% on the vote, right? No. So please explain why, them. This is why it's plurality majority. So plurality just means you have the highest percent. So if you had parties A, B, C, and D, there is a 40%, 20%, 20%, 20%. The 40% party has plurality. They're the highest percentage, therefore they win majority is 51% or higher. Got it. Are there places that require in the United States a majority win? So generally you'll see a majority type system. Um, I, I can't say that there aren't, but if there are, it's going to be at, say, state or uh, local government Correct. level. Um, yeah. And there, there are, are many, that... many different ones like that. Yeah, there's places that uh, deal with you have to have a majority or else uh, elections go into the runoff type situation. If no one achieves that majority stake. Uh, I know uh, secondary elections occur where uh, those will occur until they can have someone achieve that amount. Right. So basically they drop. Yeah, it's, it's like an... Uh... Yeah, we'll get to those as well, those different systems. Uh, but the, Australia is a great example of a system like that. Um, the second one is your proportional representation family. Um, 
that's really where these systems are used by a lot of other um, Western countries. And basically it's that percent ish goes to the total amount of seats up for grabs and it's divided proportional. So if there are 10 seats that are being voted on and 20% were party a, like two of the 10 votes were party a and set, uh, 80% was party B, then two seats would go to A and two go to B. It's not a winner take all where B got 80%, therefore they get all 10 seats, which is also common in the United States. Yeah, specifically, we've got two states that run their electoral college representation as this. Yes. So uh, it's, it's a minority, but... Right, it is a minority. However, it could be argued it does provide for a... I mean, I hate to use the word equitable distribution, but it would seem that way. Yep. Um, that's also Canada is a big system on proportional representation. Just how they have like 12 parties in their parliament. Yep. Um, and then there's semi-proportional, which is used in some local elections here in the United States. Um, and they tend to use more proportional results than plurality majority systems, but less than a fully proportional system. So I'm not really an expert in that, but they basically have cumulative and limited voting options. Um, so those, those are kind of the three. So basically you have your plurality, your proportional, and then your semi-proportional, which is kind of halfway in between. Um, now so, when you, okay, go ahead. I was going to say, could you break that one down dummy style? Cause again, like, I'm tracking on uh, proportional. I'm tracking on plurality, but the semi-plurality still a little fuzzy. Yeah, sure. So it's kind of in between the two, and the idea was you're they they were trying to solve basically the issue of plurality, which is misrepresentation and lack for the minority party, um, but. There's really two ways you can do it. Um, it's a limited voting and a cumulative voting. So they both use at-large systems, um, which is a whole other thing we don't need to really dive into quite yet. Um, but cumulative voting is talked about a lot here because um, it's big in voting rights activism right now. Um, and basically... Um, what it does is candidates run in multi-member districts. So voters have as many votes as they do seats. So then voters wow. are casting votes for individual candidates. And then the winners are the ones with the most votes. But the thing is that they can accumulate and combine their votes for one or more candidates instead of having to split one for each. So if there were five people running in the party you could put, you know, seven of your votes into one person, or you could put three into one and six into another. Um, and so it's kind of, you get to kind of mix up how you spend your total, as it were. And then the end results are what it is. You get $5 for to elect your officials, place your yep. bets. Yep. And then limited voting is um, a little bit different. Um, it basically it's it's the same premise, right? There's a candidates in a multi-member district, and people have multiple votes and vote for individuals. 
Um, and then the winners are the ones with the most votes. But the big difference is that voters have fewer votes than the number of seats available. So therefore, you know, you can't um, you can't have all all of them voted for with every single vote. But otherwise, it works exactly the same. So like you're casting the same number, you just don't have the total difference. Sure, sure. So this is probably more common in big cities or borough representation. Uh, I was going to say, it sounds that. like it's a, it'd be a good system for a parliamentary representation. It, it may. Um, I, I don't know necessarily the intricacies in the different parliament systems. But, you know, like, say, like, a city council um, in a big city like Chicago oh, or yeah. New York. Purple where members boroughs. getting elected to a board. Yeah. So you could be like, hey, I want to control, you know, these different bureaus with these different parties. So then the, the, the big difference within that, right, is that you have single winner systems and then you have multi-winner systems. Um, so that's kind of where you go and you'll, you're going to find roughly a quarter of the countries use a single winner system um, and then about almost 50% use only multi-winner and then the remainder kind of use a mix across the globe so if you want the exact numbers there's 195 countries 54 of them use only single winner um 90 use multi-winner and 38 use a mix um so obviously the big single winner would be canada usa australia um a few other countries um that are out there uh then multi-winner only you're gonna have ireland um Russia, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Spain, Portugal, um, and some in South America. And then the multi and single, the big one there is probably going to be uh, Germany, Japan, New Zealand, Mexico. Interesting. Yep. And you can break all those down too. I mean, there's proportional versus winner take all, which we've already kind of talked about. Um, but if you're going to a global standpoint, um, 89 of those 195 countries are using a proportional system. So 89 out of 195, 190 some. So about half. Yep. About half. And then as you start going through there, you know, uh, of, of those 84 that do 79 of them, um, use a, uh, use a rank choice vote system. So they, they one through five or one through N, their candidates, and then it's the most high down below. And then yeah. 64 of those 195 use winner-take-all, um, including 37 that use plurality. Uh, so it's just the highest percentage, not necessarily the Condorcet winner, which is then the, like, such as the United States, the UK, and Canada. Sure. So those ones that go one through five, your, your ranking systems, right? Yep, rank choice. Rank choice. Thank you. Um, that seems like it seems like it would be a good, good sort of methodology. Why, like, do you think that would ever gain traction in the United States at a federal level? No. Why? Uh, because I honestly, it's it's kind of a pessimistic gut view. But I feel like it's not going to gain anything because those in power don't benefit. There's no benefit for the government for us moving to a ranked choice system. 
it's beneficial for the people to to better show their their voice there's there's flaws inherently with the system i mean here personally i i I do believe that the electoral college is by far the better system within that um which it happens to fall into a single winner type system winner take all system but um so i guess it depends on what you're saying i can't see or get behind it for um federal elections but i i don't think i would have any huge issues with states that decided to do so in their own elections sure but that's one of the greatest things that we have about having our uh system of differential state you know the state legislatures get to make their uh laws for how they're going to vote for their electors right definitely but now again we're going to we're going into the system of electoral college and how that's being set because that's based upon elector representation i'm talking like if if uh let's say we both lived in michigan if the we wanted if michigan the people of michigan wanted to elect their state representatives and their state senate for the michigan legislature that way cool I'm just saying I don't want the Senate and House of Representatives that make up the U.S. Congress in D.C. to be elected this way. Understandable. Um, one of the issues that comes up with this sort of equi- equitable representation or this um, ranked choice system is a non-two-party candidacy system, um, sure. which a lot of people say, "Oh, it's you know, it's detrimental. The third party will never get some, never get additional traction." Uh, I hate to be kind of like the rain on the parade, but every other place in the world also that employs this employs a lot of like eventuality will have a radical wing of that that will get elected. It's just inevitability. Oh, definitely. It's a big perk, I would say. I would say one of the drastic drawbacks to our system is that it will devolve into a two-party system and that was called by George Washington. I mean... That that is something to be said. I do believe that there is a larger base um, when you use an RCV system versus ours. That is definitely you are right. It is it's a perk? Yeah, yeah. And I know it's it's not the most popular opinion, and it's not the greatest idea. But like, yes, it it does keep a lot of the fringe, a lot of the far far extreme viewpoints, kind of not so much under the tent, the tent because. I think at the end of the day, like we wrapped up the last uh, podcast with people just being good people. Right. And there might be a fringe element to that, but like on the whole, people are good. So, uh, but given that someone can take and commandeer a party and get that certain person elected through whatever means you're going to, at some point have to make a deal with the devil to get any sort of legislature passed. And that might be an unsavory character at that point. And sure. so with that in mind, the two party system, the devil, the evolution down to what it is benefit contrary to popular belief. So I think good viewpoint, I think exactly on, on the system itself in a practical application. But if we step back from living in the example and look at this as a system, um, and how you can examine those there's voting systems and they have various properties not unlike objects with properties so of these they have many different tests or 
these properties are they're just called properties instead of tests but one is called a property that a system can have is called favorite safe um ours is not and rank or range voting is um basically so the idea is um to explain that the favorite safe um property is that if it's never more strategic to vote for your non-favorite ahead of your favorite the system would be deemed favorite safe ergo if you thought your favorite person was ralph nader for his 57th bid at presidency but you knew (laughs) because in our system it wasn't going to work you have to vote for joe biden in this election because it's more in line with the party then you are voting for your non-favorite. So it, it does not have a favorite safe property. However, sure. that is not necessarily meaning the whole system is bad. It's just a different system. It's a different property that exists. So you can kind of put these together. So what are some of the other properties? Uh, so you can have a whole bunch of different properties. You can have um, like dumb machine property, as in it. it's basically only going to work on plurality it's a totalized vote um so it's something that can only take in so it does it work to only count one vote so you know the old go in pull a lever right they cast one vote per person that's it so it can have a dumb machine property does it pass that test or not if it can't support that or you have multiple things or they're ranked that not that won't necessarily work um another one now is, why would that be important at a, for an election at large though um, it's just something to put in for how, again, maybe not, it, it it depends on how well you're looking at scalability, timeline, relativity. This is bringing it into the real world. Like, can you apply this to a system? It's not necessarily right, so, if it passes this or doesn't, these are inherently good or bad. They're just tests. Right. But I mean, it does the property itself uh, or the, the, yeah, the property itself speaks to the idea of, like you said, scalability. It speaks to the idea that, you know, if tomorrow someone decided to go with a ranked choice voting system, uh, implementing that would be no, no small feat, right? Okay, we have to redesign all of our voting systems, all the voting counting software um, to do as such. And I mean, there would be an education. And I think that's not a small feat, given the, you know, I mean, granted, I think the majority of Americans are intelligent. And have taken a standardized test before, but I also think that uh, just examining the dumb, the dumb machine mechanic is—I think it's a fair call out. Sure. Um, I think another one that's very interesting is a remove loser safe test or property. Interesting. Um, What's that? So I'll I'll give it to you in basically the one sentence and then the uh, immediate example to make it more relative to the U.S. right now. So the remove loser safe idea is that if for some reason a candidate is unable to conduct, like be in the election since the time ballots were cast, then those ballots can be used to elect someone else so like the idea would be like if a candidate was found to be criminal and ineligible to run the ballots should still be usable to conduct the election with them removed and should still elect the same winner got it 
So um, one thing you could think of here, a good test for this is um, voting uh, in the United States party primary votes. So if I voted for, you know, Fiorina and then she dropped out between that time, would that reset who was put forth as the primary nominee or would it change it? So if it would not change it, then it's remove loser safe. That's really kind of brilliant. Yeah. So um, there are some systems where this completely breaks it. That's going to get into like a whole other thing. We won't go down that that road right now, but if you look into those tests, there's some interesting logic tables where testing these systems really breaks them. Another thing that's a little bit higher level is it's called, it's an expressiveness property. So if you look at range voting or ranked voting, you have way more expressivity or you can show more that you want. Um, If you can have, if you're always allowed to vote in um, the total amount of votes or the total amount of votes plus one, if you're allowing not voting as a valid option, um, such as say, in America, we would say not voting the bottom of the ticket or not voting the top of the ticket. In some places, that's not allowed, like some systems. You have to put a vote every single place. Either way, sure. it just changes it from N to N plus one. But the idea would be um, you can express, you have more variance in what you're saying if you can assign a rank or you can assign a range to your candidacies um, and your votes more so than just, I vote for this person. So that's just its expressiveness. Um, and then participation is pretty hard to like break but it's the idea is like if casting the vote can never cause the election result to get worse in your own view then if you had not voted then it's participation safe well i know for as an example australia requires you to vote it's you can be fined if you don't yes and they have a 92 percent turnout on uh votes yep so there's still 8% of people who are like, nah, fed boy. Yeah. Like it, that's kind of mind blowing to me. I'm still bitter that you took my gun. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they were compensated. Sure. Do you think all guns were removed from Australia during a mandatory voluntary gun back, buyback? Sure, don't. Nope. Next so anyway, slide. those those are kind of the big the big rundowns of the types of voting systems um, and the ones that are out there. If you're curious about, as of 2012, there's 22 proportional systems, and they almost all had proportional representation, as in 21 of the 22 did. The other one was ranked choice voting for everything. There were seven mixed, and then um, mixed uh, proportional representation and winner-take-all parallel. There was a couple of those. And this isn't breaking them all down, but um, if you're really looking at, you can kind of go through some top major democracies in the world and what type of system they have. And you can see only six of 35 are a true winner take all, uh, such as the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, and there's so how of- does winner take all compare to first past the post? So, winner take all is, uh, so like, let's, let's take, Let's take, uh, this is exactly how electors are assigned right now in the United States for a majority of states. The idea is that if within the state, let's say California, for fun, 
if 49.9% of the vote went to one candidate and 50.1% went to the other, all 100% of whatever California has goes to the winning party. It won't be divided. So if it's for 100 seats... Non-proportional. Right, it's non-proportional. It's whoever wins the plurality gets the total. So because we have um, electors in this country for the Electoral College, the states tend to be um, winner-take-all, which is how... So when the state declares all of those electoral votes go as opposed to a um, proportional basis based on county, which is how we count votes up in the United States. So the counties count, tally the votes, send them to the state, who then declares the winner of the state, and then that gets the electoral college electors, who then cast their votes. So how do other countries... Let's dive into a a different one. Let's say Great Britain. How does Great Britain uh, determine its its electors or its elected officials, rather, not electors, because we're special and unique? Uh, for so for House of Commons and local councils, they use first past the post. That's based on constituencies. So voters put an X in the preferred candidate, and the ballots are counted the candidate with the most votes represents that constituency award. Um, committees in the House of Commons and the Lord Speaker um, and elections for hereditary peers are used in alternate alternative vote uh, where they basically rank. So they use a ranked voting system um, and they can rank as many or as few of the candidates as they want. First preference votes are counted first. If they have a majority, so over 50%, then they are voted in. If no one reaches that, then the lowest or the fewest um, first preference person is eliminated, and the second votes, second preference on that ballot is counted with the remaining candidates. And it goes through that until they find the majority, and that's how they fill. That is kind of crazy to me. That kind of blows my mind. Not going to um, lie. Yeah, it's it's an interesting system. Then they have supplementary votes as well, which is like the alternative voting system. Um but a because little bit You different. just said you just said, "Hey, you got 51%. You got it, champ. You're in. Next guy." Yeah. Like, what? And they said if you didn't, they go, "You came in last place. Bye." Yeah. They recount. Yep. That is crazy. All right. And then there's some weirder than America. There's some that do transitional votes too, which is really crazy too. So, yeah. So explain that. So it's a transferable vote. So we talked about before in the systems. um, If I go back, right. The, the, um, in like the limited voting or the cumulative voting where you get the total amount of votes as seats are available. So what they do is that's the genesis of this. That's how they get the votes in. But then when they're tallying them, once the first person hits 51%, the rest of your votes, because your your main person already got it, they just get transferred to the second person on your list. So it's it's like your votes roll over down the list. So every single one that you cast counts. Yeah, which is just the craziest thing in the world to me. 
but I mean, ethnocentric lifestyle, right? So uh, I couldn't even imagine the idea of like having more than one one vote being able to be cast. However, if any of you out there listening cannot decide where you want to eat, this is the easiest way to determine where you're going to out to dinner with a large group of people. Let everyone cast votes and they all get to vote more than once. And because no one is conflicted with, oh, I can't give up my single vote, you'll have a majority of individuals at least appeased with the situation. And if, in case that place is ever closed, the, sing- the as it's called, single transferable vote would roll on to the next place or the range voting system, if you will. Or you could just use range. Or you could use my soon-to-be app that I plan on releasing to solve <laughs> this exact problem. Where to go to eat has always been, it has always plagued me. So Figured I have a solution. Eight. We just need to write it. All right. We'll work on the software side of it. That, yes. This will be fun. I mean, yep. I can already hear the commercials. Honey, where would you like to eat? I'm not sure. And then begins the naming of the different restaurants, the Mexican, the Asian. Does this plague you on a daily basis? Get where to eat now. Download for free. Yeah. But here's the thing. I'm not pigeonholing myself, man. I'm not pigeonholing myself. (laughs) This app can be used all the time. I'm a renaissance man. All right. Uh, Anyway, let's circle back back around. Right. But I mean, honestly, uh, choosing where to eat, is there's a direct correlation between that and the appeasement of individuals in a large group, right? Like it works on a small scale, but once you supersize some of those things to use the food reference there, uh, it some of these systems just are an unwieldy beast of which there's no escape. I would say a simplistic example, though, is really the Condorcet principle of the Condorcet systems, right? Which is really how most Americans, I think, view or can conceptualize a lot of voting outside Condorcet? of our federal system. Yeah, Condorcet, named after what the Condorcet? French marquis who invented it in who knows when. But the Condorcet system basically is, it's the ultimate, there can only be one Highlander of head-to-head. It's the whole thing is you put every person head to head and the winner of that person wins. It's a bracket. It's a bracket system. Also great places to decide where to eat. You have four suggestions. Do you want to go to A, B or C or D? Which one sounds better? Then you have a head to head. Then you choose between the two. You're always doing a head to head. Yeah. And I, I think that's where most people see it, right? At March Madness. Some people magically understand this conceptual voting system mechanic yeah that is like it blows their mind when they read the paper talking about how when you have paradoxes of candidate x above y that may take the victory from x and give it to y they don't understand well there's systems in place to prevent that but (laughs) at the simplistic level uh 1785 when marquis and condesay made the Condorcet system. Anyway. 1785? Yep. Interesting. Uh, so, yep. All of this uh, 
stuff is outlined in our constitution and it's spoken about you mean the electoral college yes yeah article two section one right all this is spoken about in our constitution and in the federalist papers Mm -hmm. um so what is article two section one what is that you it's cool you can just rattle it off but what is it what's it say and verbatim and in like tldr article two section one clauses two and three is really what makes what we call the electoral college and that is just the system that chooses our president which is made of 538 electors drawn from all the states and the district of columbia and it will go forward um, from there. So basically it says each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislation thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress, but no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. The Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. So basically, what they're saying here is that every state is going to create electors, create a body of people that they're going to call electors that will be the total number of people that they have representing them. So we already know every state is given two senators across the board to make the Senate have 100 seats. And the House of Representatives right now is population-based as 438 seats. So basically, you take your total of your two senators plus your representatives. That's how many electors you have to assemble in a body. And they cast their vote. They have a very specific requirement that they cannot be serving in the government in any capacity. So these have to just be non-political citizens. Um, and then also, basically says the rest of the day, or, or the, the Congress will say this is the day that the electors have to be chosen, and this is the day that they have to vote for their state, and that will be the same across all 50 states. Also, a quick history lesson. This is why states are added in pairs. Because you've got one opinion from one, or one side of uh, one faction and that and the other, so uh, going back through time, you know, it was a small number of years that we had forty nine states right before. Or if we go back to when we had forty eight states, Hawaii was then added, and then a very short time thereafter, uh, Alaska was added. Recently, there's been discussions of making uh puerto rico a state um especially from the left which i you know that's uh not not gonna weigh in on that decision but also uh from the right i don't hear cries that any of our territories like guam which has a very large population of individuals that serve in the national guard out there uh call for them to achieve statehood sure i I mean that that's a good loose rule recently i mean there's there's some gaps but yeah it's um, generality if you continue reading the article 
you'll find that it defines that the electors are voting for the president and the vice president, which caused ties in 1800. Um, it was super weird because Thomas Jefferson in the Democratic Republican Party defeated uh, John Adams of the Federalist Party, 73-65, but then tied his own nominal running mate, which was Aaron Burr, 73-73. to So then Burr didn't want to stand down, so then the uh, basically the House of Representatives had to go into a contingent election, which is had to cast a vote for the president. So all of the House of Representatives comes together and they get one vote and that broke the tie. Um, so then that kind of was a struggle until they passed out the 12th, passed the 12th amendment in 1804. Uh, so the electors were casting two. Now they cast one vote. That's kind of a difference. Um, that's happened since you read the, the plain text of article two. Yeah, because as it stands today, our political excuse me, recut that. Ugh. Yeah, because as it stands today, our political parties choose their uh, nominations for president, and the president then selects their vice presidential candidate. Um, and that varies from political party to political party. I know the Libertarian Party uh, selects both the president and vice president independent of each other. In the Unity Party, which personally th hope will gain some traction, selects a Republican and Democrat ticket, and the president and vice president is decided by a coin toss. Right. Why not? And uh, I'm going to go back through it. Um, 48 of our states use winner take all with their electors now. Um, so whoever gets the top votes in that statewide popular election gets all of the electors voting for them. Uh, but those quick and math rise that there are two states that do not do that. What two states are those? That'd be Maine and Nebraska. So why do you think the proportionality of electoral, uh, of electors hasn't caught on, uh, with the other 48 states? Oh man, I think it's easier. I mean, I see. So when you look into it, there's been basically they award Maine and Nebraska split their electors by congressional district. Um, and then from there, they reserve their two electoral votes that would be equivalent to the two awarded to their two senators to the statewide winner. So they there's a small bit of popularity, but then the rest of it's congressional. So you could say it's trying to be more equitable in its voting if you wanted to. Um, but I mean, really there's, there's a few different reasons why they may want to do that system. Is that something that has to be outlined in their constitution or is that just a legislative thing that can sway from year to year? So it's up to the states to decide. So historically it gets really crazy in the very first presidential election, five of our states. So, uh, Connecticut, Delaware, Georgia, New Jersey, and South Carolina just designated their electors. They never had a popular election. The, the states <laughs> were just like, here's our electors, go vote. In four of the states, the voters elected the electors. So they didn't even vote on the candidates. They just kind of voted on who the electors were going to be. And then in Virginia, oh. the General Assembly divided a commonwealth into 12 districts and then conducted a popular election. And then from there, they've been 
ever since then, they've done statewide elections and elections of electors from single member districts that mirror the congressional districts. That sounds real convoluted. And if they were multi-member districts, they would, um, the electors' names would be on the ballots and not the presidential candidates. What in the world? Yeah, so it gets pretty crazy. And all this came, um, all these have been allowed under constitutional design. Um, and yeah. The Supreme Court well, ruled on this in 1892, which rejected a constitutional challenge by Michigan providing um, electors, a selection of electors by district. And it was told, quote, the appointment and mode of appointment of electors belonging exclusively to the states under the Constitution of the United States. So there's no uniform national need for it. Well, there there shouldn't be, in my right. opinion. Like, it, this is one of the this is one of the bugs that's in the system, and it's really weird to me to hear certain uh, right wing pundits sit there and say we need a federal standard for voting. And I'm like, no, no, we don't. the The beauty of the standard, the thing that makes it super hard to try and fuzz the numbers, is because we have 50 different elections that go on to elect the president. The fact that you can't, you've got so many weird eccentricities to them makes it that much more difficult. So there's like huge five presidential elections that the electoral college did not line up with the national popular vote. Um, More recently, we've had a couple. Um, Obviously, I'm not counting this year. Hasn't been officially determined yet. Sure. But yeah, 2000 and 2016. So twice while we've been alive. Um, so that was that was pretty crazy. Yep. Um, but it re- it really comes down. I like the electoral college too because I think it comes down to it, you have to get out to other states. The president doesn't have to just sit in the populous coasts. Um, they have to go out and see what's out there. So um, I've heard this a lot, and uh, I've also heard counterpoint arguments to this, which the first. If you take the most populous cities on the map in the United States and you add them all up, getting down to below a million, so that's the first 90 state, 90 cities on the map, still does not get you over the necessary uh, amount of vote you need. That's only that's less than 20%. I think it's 17 point something. So I do don't mean? know. Percent. Yeah. What's that? You mean percent? Percent, yes. I don't know sure. that's a truly applicable statement. I so the whole uh getting out to the grassroots not so much. I do believe in the electoral college though wholeheartedly if uh the argument is posed as building a coalition of building di- building a diverse coalition though because under that guys sure you definitely need to have a wide range of individuals uh to come together to form that beyond that uh if it's posed as well swing states are always up in play yes many states have swung from being hard left hard right to um all sorts of things i look at a state that i think is probably going to swing one way or the other in the near future west virginia is a really odd duck to me considering its federal representation is Joe Manchin, who, for all intents and purposes, I can tell is what I would consider a classic conservative, which 
or classic liberal, sorry, as it was. And with that in mind, if he's claims himself a proud Democrat, those values sound a heck of a lot like conservative values today. I mean, I think really it just comes down to when you look at um, electoral votes and the map of the electoral college votes, um, it, it kind of crystallizes that a little bit um, for us in um, how that looks and what the total numbers look like, um, in, in my opinion. that That's kind of the issue. Um, but before we go go completely into into that, the the thing that is very interesting to me, and maybe you maybe you have this opinion. I know you just stated that you don't think there should be a federal standard on how elections are carried out. Um, but do you know that only twenty nine states have any law that affect how their electors vote? So are you speaking about the faithless electors? Well, no, it's it's not even faithless. It's that they're not bound. They can do what they want. You could say faithless electors. That's the term you could say. But only 29 of them have to actually vote with. Yeah. And that occurred in uh, recent history, if memory serves me right, during the Clinton election, where there were a couple of faithless electors, as uh, colloquialism may call them, uh, who decided to go against what was the people's choice, right? Right. But though there is an interesting thing um, that could be noted that many of them is that um, a lot of the states that do have laws, it's normally a misdemeanor fine around $1,000 or less. But there's been constitutional scholars that have opined that the um, that any control may actually be unconstitutional. And if it ever got challenged, so that electors are free agents despite state laws. So that if it were to be challenged, it would be found unconstitutional. Really? So, so yeah, I mean, obviously it hasn't been taken to the court yet, but um, that there are people who are saying, no, they're, they're agents acting on behest of the United States filling out their constitutional duties and you cannot supersede or restrict them further. So, so it's, it's just an interesting thing you could walk through mentally. I'd like to take this a little bit back around the world because we explored Great Britain, mm -hmm. but um, I'd like to look at other countries, maybe some closer, some farther away. Sure. So how does Canada elect its elected officials? Canada, they are proportional. Um, they are also, they fall under the same as the United States. So they're still winner take all, but they use a first past the post system as well. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go for the, the real crazy one, the one that, you know, the land of the echidna, the land of the platypus, land of the kangaroo. What does Australia use? Because I know it's not what the rest of the world uses. They have three types. They have first past the post. Then they have, um, and that was used in the beginning of the country. Uh, now they use preferential and proportional representation for their parliamentary elections. So with full preferential voting, they give each candidate must be given a preference by the voter. So it favors majority, but it can give elections to parties with fewer votes than its majority opponents. Um, but it usually ends up with a disproportionate number of seats to the controlling party. Um, 
as an optional preferential voting where they can allocate preferences to you as one candidate, so a single ballot. Um, and it sometimes creates similar to the professional or preferential voting. Um, but when winning candidates get less than half the votes, you know, that that happens um, more often. That's a plurality winner take all system, much like the United States and the UK. Then you have the proportional representation, which is used in their Senate elections, um, and that increases your minor minority and independence of winning seats, um, and it creates a bigger struggle between the big parties because they can't really gain full control. Um, and then there's this Hare-Clark system that basically creates an electoral system where party members fight each other as much as external opponents to get seats what yeah oh my goodness that's very australian yeah all and right so then. their their proportional representation uses the single transferable vote system which which we had talked about so i've got one last one what about yeah. sweden or switzerland sorry as it was the great neutral they are a multi-winner nation uh yeah they're a proportional representation multi-winner so they divide the seats based on how many people, percentage-wise, hand them out, vote in batches. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. So do they do they have a prime minister or a president? What's their highest elected official? Um, they have the president of the Swiss Confederation. All right. But and they're the head of a seven-member federal council, which is the whole country's executive branch. Is seven executive people? Yeah, the federal council. So that's pretty interesting. And they're elected for one year. The federal assembly is elected by one year. Oh, wow. GG, yep. I'm getting anything done. And they're not eligible for uh, re-election. Holy mackerel. Wow. Um, that's kind of crazy. All right. So what's your feelings on, one, if you have a if you have an executive branch of councils, basically that sounds a heck of a lot of the different, uh, not elected department heads that the president chooses for his cabinet. Okay. Right. It's probably not the same thing, right? However, kind of sounds the same to that end though. When president goes to, goes to pick his cabinet members that the Senate still has the right to, um, Something in consent. I forgot the exact term. Advising consent. Advising consent. Thank you. So what's interesting to me, I just learned, is that the amount of individuals left over from a previous administration uh, and a new incoming administration, hey, they've been confirmed. Why get them out of there? Doing a good job. Totally understandable. You don't have 100% rollover in government. Okay, not bad. But uh, to get anyone newly appointed to that cabinet don't you still serve at the privilege of the president or whatever it's called to be on the council no, not to be on the council but to be acting as a, a cabinet, member. cabinet member yeah i mean cabinet members yeah they i mean they get i don't know if they get reappointed or just don't get replaced i don't really know how they're i don't know if they come with a not to exceed stamp on their appointment 
it's kind of one of my questions as of recently that I, the cabinet holds a lot of power and it you serve at the privilege of the of the president so everything from the department of justice to uh department of homeland security those positions hold tons of sway and tons of power that has been uh given up from the legislature yeah i think it's really interesting on how all of that works so we've discussed all these different types of voting systems what do you think i've got two questions for you first one is i know you've voiced that hey you like what we have in america but what would you say is your preferred voting system if not american and then second um what are some of some of the rationales behind that and you know how can we improve what we already have if it is or is not perfect three questions not two so whatever go sure all right so i think yeah i i've been pretty clear that i believe for federal elections for the office of the president there's nothing better than the electoral college in fact i'm gonna go right here down to uh, the Federalist Paper 68. It was written by Alexander Hamilton when he was trying to convince people of the importance of the Electoral College. He designed the system, and he said that he does not hesitate to affirm that if the manner of it being the Electoral College be not perfect, it is at least excellence. And that it unites in an eminent degree all the advantages, the union of which was to be wished for. And I think that this is so great, and the concept is phenomenal. Um, calling up people who have no service or no personal gain in the government immediately by banning anyone of office or trust of the United States government at the time, which basically means they're not getting paid by the government and they don't play a role as their profession in the government gives you that piece. And also it being called by the state at the time makes it reactionary and a real vote of the people, especially in those 20 states where they are not bound. Um, he goes on in this paper to talk about how they should be well-educated and they should understand what's going on. And these people should, like it's a privilege, but they need to be selected carefully in a matter to best serve the nation. Um, and I, I think that's really an important part that's lost there. And it's so sim simply, I don't think it's a perfect system, just like he said, but I can't think of a better system. Also, it's in the Constitution, and I truly support our Constitution. Definitely. So I'm not going to argue with it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the inherent, not necessarily the best logically sound first principles argument is because that's what it says. but. I mean, that I chose that to follow those laws outlined by living in this country. So I think it's pretty great. Um, outside, it's, so if we're saying, you know, barring the presidential election, I don't necessarily think that popular vote is the best solution for everything, uh, especially not like in a winner-take-all situation. Um, and I think that there's so many different systems, and there are they exist for different reasons. And I think that that's kind of the best answer you're going to get from me is the non-answer. I love range voting. Like I, I am interested in it so much. And I think it's a ton of applicable 
scenarios and it has the most of those properties that we talked about. It's very expressive. It doesn't fall into a no-show. It doesn't have any like participation issues. So there's like no-show paradoxes and some logical things are outlined in some systems um, that cause issues. It avoids those. It's favorite safe. It's clone safe. It's remove loser safe. You can use a dumb machine for it, technically, if it's done right. It's simple. I would could con- enact it. Okay, so I would contest that that is the one thing I disagree with uh, on the idea that range voting is dumb machine safe. It, I don't know that it could be. I mean, mathematically, sure. However, the implementation for it to be simplistic enough to be achievable i think would be near beyond grasp so the fact right now is that in the test that they've done every voting machine in the united states without modification can handle range voting really so yes i retract and concede my point (laughs) okay um, I don't think it's great necessarily for all the other powers. Like, I think it's it's great and it's expressive. And I think, honestly, it came to the forefront with Netflix, with Amazon, with these multiple ranked things to give the best. I think it gives an amenable solution okay. to a yep. lot of things. It'll bubble up some great answers where even if everyone everyone isn't most satisfied with the very nature of the range vote system, it will give you um it will it will give the most satisfaction to the broadest audience which i think is good in some scenarios because i'm not going to put everything into the political sense sure um plurality plurality is great too when you just need a few things done uh obviously we talked about it before conversation systems they're really great in sports right the the head to heads that's yep what they're there for um so I, I like them. I think they all just apply. I just don't think there's a single voting system I've heard that I would be believing solves the system, solves the election of our president better than the Electoral College. I agree with that statement. However, um, there are other voting systems that you interact with on a daily basis, or at least if you have the... Uh cell phone that's attached to your hip and the probably one of the most you know frequented websites and on the internet youtube uh that has a voting system and it is a thumb up thumb down it used to be a uh star so it's called an approval system an approval system thank you yep um it used to have a system of stars that you would rank videos what they noticed they didn't get near the interaction of individuals. So by switching to an approval system, a thumbs up or thumbs down, the amount of interaction, the amount of people is just like, I like it or I don't, right? Uh, interaction increased overall. So here's the thing. Approval, which you just described, is actually considered the best in terms of simplicity. Um, and plurality ranks good. Condorcet is complex instant runoff is complex 
range is surprisingly better than you would think and then borda is medium and we're not going to get into all those right now but the idea being um the, the one issue is uh centrism in terms of the uh in terms of approval that is where voter behavior becomes incredibly important um when you're dividing between the two so like it, it it's really good because it's super simple just like right. you saw youtube saw way more however it's really really iffy on centrist votes sure and i'd say the majority of at least the americans i'm you know tracking on our centrists and fence sitters and they feel very strongly about maybe one to two issues but everything else they're kind of like meh meh whatever right so that could lead to i mean you know approval may go really well and coupled with you know like heavy-handed legislation requiring voting sure but Without that, it, it does. It drives down poll numbers. And then you technically, you know, you, even though we don't force it, and I'm not advocating that every single person go out and vote, but it, it's going to lead to lower voter turnout. You mentioned something there that I find interesting. You're, you said you wouldn't advocate that every single person turn out and vote. Nope. Why is that? Because I believe you should vote if you're educated in what you're voting on. If you're not educated in it, don't go and vote. You don't you don't have a punishment. I mean, it's not like Affordable Care Act tax for not having it. You're not going to get fined for not voting. We don't live in Australia. I mean, to that end, though, like people have feelings, people have opinions. And whether they're sure. educated about a certain thing or not, I mean, where would you set that bar? I mean, I know historically I've heard I can't speak too much of because I haven't done much research of it, but of things like voting tests where tests were administered that you had to pass to be able to vote, to cast that ballot. Sure. I mean, I think that would be great. I want informed voters. I I don't necessarily think that we need to put a test on it because that just sounds like more legislation. It does sound like more legislation. That I don't want. Exactly. I'm just saying that, you know, I'm not going to, I am. It's the same reason I'm staunchly against lowering the voting age, because I definitely don't think the 16-year-olds that they're lowering it to are well informed on any of the topics that they're affecting. To that end, do you believe so, that 18-year-olds are? I mean, more so. But I'm going to tie that one straight to the fact that if you can say that I'm old enough to serve the country, I can vote for who's going to be my commander in chief. I mean, to that end, though, you can serve your country at 17. Yeah, technically. It's being technically right is my favorite kind of right. I feel like given a few slim outcomes, you will be 18 before you get out of training. So you're splitting hairs and it doesn't make for a logical conclusion. I would say what's the percentage of people who join when they're 17? Let's say out of the entirety of my basic training initial day, we had one out of a thousand. 
So one of a, one in a thousand, multiply that by 365. Every day there's a new incoming batch of troops. What's the uh, what's the odds on that, Mister Mathematician? So I was just pulling this up. The uh, National Center for Education Statistics doesn't even go down to 17 on the military age. Capita <laughs> <laughs> 18. So they they're like yeah yeah they don't count. I guess we can get rid of the ed too. I mean I'm good with that. Yeah, I I like I I like the idea of it. I like the the thought process on it, and I like the logic behind it. Um, I yeah, if we say you can enter service at 17, yeah, okay, cool, because I'm trusting you with a fully automatic weapon. I'm trusting let's you. Be very. Let's be very clear. You have to be 17, but you also have to have graduated high school. Uh, I'll give you the same requirement. Okay, you don't have to have graduated high school. You can... With... Or GED. No, sir. Uh, that's still not 100% correct. You can join the National Guard at 17 during your junior uh, summer, uh, the summer of your junior year, come back, finish your high school uh, education, and then continue your training after uh, graduation. Just like a... This is like an Army National Guard thing. Yes, it's called split option. I saw this for the um, for the officer side of that house. Really? Yep. Interesting. Um, they did the same thing basically for for college. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, um, so carrying your thought process to full full conclusion, though, right? Like carrying that out, I would say that. Probably okay. So I guess I don't know army side, but I'm willing to bet that if you did not, if you failed high school, you would not continue. If you fail high school, your focus from the military the side of the house is you will finish high school first, prior to you completing your training. But at 17, you can enlist and you can oh. go to basic training. Right. Yeah, that's fine. But you won't join the force without having graduated high school. Uh, technically. Right. So that's my thing. If, if you graduate <laughs> high school, you're 17. I don't care. You can vote. I'll put the oh. same requirements as honorable military service. How about that? Oh, okay. So to that end, though, uh, what about individuals who... I don't know, take someone like the Ben Shapiro who skipped third and ninth grade, achieved his high school diploma early, whatever age that may be, 16. Does the idea still hold water? If he's 17 and has his high school diploma, yeah. If we're going off the, the military entry requirements for the 17. Okay. I mean, my general rule of thumb I would say keep it at 18 because I feel like it's such an exclusion. There's there's such a small percentage of people who are 17 in total force. I, you know, but, I honestly like after playing this out in my mind and talking through it, um, I'm really kind of personally convinced that of what you stated, I, I'm kind of, kind of gonna, gonna buy the ticket on it, man. It sounds like a really sensible rationality that 
okay, you have met all requirements to serve in the nation's military. Check. All right, go ahead. Why can't you vote? That doesn't, that seems logical to me. No, I would duplicate them, right? I would try not to make that the exact bar because we all know what happens when things hit the fan and then all of a sudden you had, you were in prison for violent crimes, but we need bodies. So we start waiving waivers if that, you know, <laughs> so I, I would spell them out. I'd, yeah, but I'd, I'd take the current requirements. So what's your thought process on uh, criminals who have paid their debt to society, uh, served, uh, you know, terms in prison, do they, are they allowed to vote? It's up to the state. Truth. Uh, the state dictates whether or not you are allowed to vote if you have committed certain crimes. Uh, I didn't know this until moving from Michigan to Ohio, where uh, there are different things for that. So that was a, that was a new revelation to me. You can vote in Michigan. Um, if you're a felon and you, the only times you cannot vote is if you are in jail or prison serving a sentence. Oh, wow. So if you're awaiting arraignment, if you're awaiting trial, if you're charged with the felony, but you're not convicted, if you just got released, if you're on parole, or if you're in the process of appealing your conviction, you can still vote. And if you're in jail while any of those above things are happening, you can vote absentee so you do not permanently lose your rights in michigan there are some states i believe where you do permanently lose your rights i know there was a big controversy because individuals living in florida have to to achieve their voting rights back uh have to pay restitution for whatever crimes they committed right i i could get behind that yep uh the caveat to that statement is a third party was coming in and paying those restitution fees to enable those individuals to vote. At the end of the day, was the fine accepted by the state in terms of restitution for fulfilling the fulfilling the, the obligation? Yes. Then yes. Yep. I mean, that, that to me, that's fine. If it's part of your restitution, as soon as you are, you make the state whole for your crime. You are. You should have your. Rights reinstated. I I hear you, and the one half of my brain agrees. The other half says, "Well, a third party coming between, you know, an individual and that, especially a third party that's an out of state entity, is super sketch." Yeah, but I mean, if they didn't, then the felon was just going to find the exact amount in bills in an envelope on their dash with an absentee ballot. So. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. That's 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 quite the pessimistic view there. I I'm I'm also like I'm in favor of someone restoring their right to vote. I think that's especially anyone who's like you said, uh I'm I'm not 100% on the not everyone should vote. I get out the vote kind of a thing. But uh individuals I'm gonna say at large yeah go ahead and vote if you spend five minutes that might be better than some if you spend days on end you know understanding policies what individuals want to implement and trying to actually affect change for the 
for the not just yourself but for the community i I definitely want you to get out and vote Uh, you know left and right democrat republican whatever i think at the end of the day we're all trying to achieve just a better world just how you go about it is going to be different from one side to the other yeah i mean i i agree i think it, it for me it just comes down personally to really looking at what was embodied and envisioned by the founders and the responsibilities that they placed on the individuals at the time and the weight that voting had um and how much it was pressed upon people that they need to be educated and this was something like the, there was no edu- department of education beforehand because it was understood that it was on your responsibility to pursue your own education and educate yourself if you're not doing that then i you know i think you as a general you i think people owe that to their role in society to educate themselves on these topics and to talk about more than other you know what they had for lunch or you know what movie they saw last like i i have the place for that i love to unwind i love being entertained but i also think that you know actually pursuing and challenging your ideas and challenging your thoughts and others and engaging in those communications it's vital right that we said it in the outline of this podcast that that is a vital piece that we believe in I think that carries into voting. Like, I think you need to be informed on these things and know what these people stand for. Uh, Go read it. Go learn about it. Go listen to it. Go question it. Even if it's your same side, you should always be questioning your same side with at least, if not more rigor than you question the other. At least a healthy amount of skepticism definitively. Yes. So that's that's kind of where I'm like, I, I don't want you to just go out and vote because you have no idea, like, go wake someone up and... They're like, what day is it? And you just drag them in and just be like, just hit the third bubble. It's all I need. Like, <laughs> that's fair. I'm not going to be like, I'm going to give you a ride to the voting station. They're like, who's running? Like, if you can't tell me who's running, do you need to vote? Probably not. I vote in primaries. I know a lot of people don't vote in primaries. I know a lot of people who don't go and vote for their city council and their state legislature or you know their county commissioner on you know the sixth day in august every three years or whatever it is but then they become the biggest get out and vote every vote counts person every four years like no you're not like don't don't tell me you care (laughs) like it's it seems inconsistent i yeah it it definitely seems inconsistent. So to that end though, like getting out there, getting the vote out, all that stuff with that, with that in retrospect, like any chance you get to have a part in your community. I know we called it out last podcast where we said, Hey, be, be the change in your community that you want to see, do that, do the great stuff, run for the vacant office of under treasury secretary, you know, run uncontested, be a part of the system, make a change for the better in the world. 100%. And here's something I'm, I'm just going to give like this, this free shout out right now. There's an app called vote spotter. One word. It's on Android and iOS. You plug in basically, I don't know if you need to give it your name and email address, but you for sure put in your zip code or your address and it shows you your state 
and federal representation for uh like so it shows your congressional members and then your um your state reps and then when you go into that person it shows every bill that came forward and their voting record and it gives a link straight to what the um bill is how they voted it allows you to send feedback so you can see how they vote you can pull up their whole record and be like do i agree with this bill yes or no did they vote yes or no you can inform yourself with a green and red thumb on things that are important to you that is awesome instantly and it's localized to where you live so you don't no longer wonder who represents you that's very awesome so what 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 do you think about the whole local representation and i know there's more than just my small community that's affected by individuals running uncontested i think it's the nature of the beast i mean i came from a pretty small farm town that's just how it is i mean our mayor was like a part-time figurehead like they signed stuff things needed to be done but those people actually genuinely cared um people run uncontested all the time especially for things like my grandma was the county clerk uh for her county for a great number of years ran uncontested sometimes ran contested it's just such a small town that's what the person does and they do it for a few years and then it's the next person you know it's a very amicable not hotly contended but i mean you're not i it, it comes down to you know the same thing is like why don't we use this system that this country uses or why don't we use the system that that country uses and the fact is america is huge and extremely diverse and I'm not going to go down that now. We can have a whole episode on this. But what I'm getting at is that you run into scalability issues very quickly. And this comes back a lot. What worked for uncontested small county drain commissioner in this town in the middle of the Midwest is not going to be embroiled in the complexities of managing a multiple municipality major city sewer system like one of the top 10 cities in the country like there's just it's not the same scope of work and you don't need councils and you don't need opposing people who are passing initiatives because it just the infrastructure isn't there for that Sure. So I think, you know, it, it comes down to it comes down to where it is. I think the smaller towns, the smaller regions are great. And I think if you try to force down all of these requirements from above, it's like when you were run, running a shop and you were undermanned when you were serving. Like, you know, you're not going to get everything done. You can't hit all the checklists. You can't meet all the requirements because there's just not enough manpower. And in the fact of those small cities, there's just not the budget. A lot of people do a volunteer. Uh, I served with a guy who was his town's treasurer. He was the town treasurer. He happened to be an accountant. He did it for free, just for the county, but still was elected. Like they, They're like, yeah, this is an elected position, but we can't pay you. So, I mean, he yeah, did it was it just, just to help the township. Like That's that's the thing, is it you still find these very small areas, and I think it's great, because then you get the person in there who's like, I don't need to get paid. I'm going to do this because it's helpful to the community as a whole. Yeah, I was reading and uh, elected officials make somewhere uh, on the small, you know, in the small municipalities, somewhere between one and two thousand dollars per year. Yeah. You're not basically you're not getting rich in the generality like 
asterisk going into local government. Right. So, so I think it's great. I think it's a good way to give back. Um, or a good way to get to know people. I think the social capital of participating in such a thing is, is a great thing. But one of the things you defined and you said gloss over it, but like I've said it a couple of times on the podcast and I just really want to call it out. The idea of American exceptionalism that one, we are, we're great, right? We're exceptional, but also that we, our experience is different from that of the rest of the world. Right. So I couldn't agree more and we're at time. So we hope you use the discussions we've had here today to learn more, challenge your own thoughts, give us your feedback, ask a significant other their opinion and reflect on the nature of the issue. With that, thanks again for listening to Use After Free. We look forward to hearing from you. I think that's going to be a good podcast.